Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our April Bold Conversation. My name is Jason Franklin. I'm the Executive Director of Boulder Giving, and excited to have you join us here in a discussion with Russell Roybal, the Deputy Executive Director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, and one of our newest featured Bold Givers. Hi, Russell. Hi, Jason. Hi, everyone. Glad you could be here. Um, and at least we've got clear, sunny weather, even if it's fallen back into the winter with like 35 degrees. Very yeah, sad and cold this morning. I know. I'm, yeah. mourn I'm mourning the 70-degree summer that we had over the weekend. That was all of our spring we had. Um, but really great to have you here and have so many people joining us for this call. Um, I know some people have had a chance to read your profile on our site, um, but others haven't had a chance to kind of hear about your journey. So maybe just to start us off, could you give us the, the quick kind of snapshot journey of your, uh, your donor journey? Sure. Well, uh, in my profile, and uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about before, uh, GK, well, first of all, thank everyone for joining us, um, no matter where you're at. Um, I'm actually really excited and uh, honored to be here, and thank you, Jason and Boulder Giving, for giving me the uh, opportunity to talk about my giving, because it's very important to me. Um, and I really learned about giving in church. I grew up a good Catholic Chicano in East L.A., and we went to church, and uh, that's where I really learned about giving and philanthropy, although I didn't know to call it those terms um, then, but, you know, I felt uh, my family instilled in me that it was something that we were supposed to do, and although I grew up working class, um, it was something that was a part of who we were, that we had more than other people, and that it was our responsibility um, to share what we had with uh, our community. Um, so that was kind of my first experience, I guess, uh, in philanthropy on the giving side. Uh, but I always... Uh, most most folks know that I chose fundraising as a career, and that fundraising to me is equally as important. And you know, I was the kid that always sold the most candy and always <laughs> got the most pledges for the lapathon or things like that. But I, I it didn't happen because I did it on my own. It's because I involved other people uh, in helping me raise that money, uh, and that's what I've done my whole career. And um, I love raising money as much as I like giving it away, and um, I have had the great experience of not only working for a nonprofit organization um, where I got my start in San Diego, um, and now working here at the task force and being a fundraiser, but I also got to work for a private foundation, the Gill Foundation, and got to uh, understand what it was like to be a conduit uh, for organizations uh, in terms of being a program officer uh, and having a grant portfolio um, at the Gill Foundation. Um, and then, of course, my own giving, which has grown uh, over the years. I just did my taxes last week, and I was surprised <laughs> at the amount of money that I've given away. Pleasantly surprised, but uh, surprised nonetheless. And uh, it, it, that's always my favorite part of doing my taxes, is looking to see how much I gave away this, the last year and how much I did the year before, so... That's a little snapshot about me. <laughs> I had that moment too, and then I, I was like, oh no, I'm not ready. So I just submitted an extension. I have to deal with that later. The joys of the taxes. Um, but it is fun. It's like that trip down memory lane of who were you involved with over the last 12 months, which is always a nice moment. Um, so maybe talk, I'm curious a little bit more, you know, you talk about how your family was the kind of first source of inspiration and in seeing the kind of role modeling of giving. And I know one of the things that so many people ask us ask me about is how how to change the models that they may have grown up with. You know that there are certain parts of the examples that your parents set that you love and want to continue to replicate, and there are other ways that each of us grow and learn and are different than our parents. How is your giving today like your family's or different than your family's? Well, even my family's uh, giving has changed. You know, we don't give to the church anymore. Um, hmm. 
my, my family tithed growing up. I tithe. Although the way that I tithe is to social justice groups and um, not necessarily to the, the church of my youth. Um, but, you know, I, our, my giving has certainly changed over time. It, my, my family's giving has too. Um, I think one of the most important things I, that ever came across my desk that I, uh, that you and I have talked about that I think it's an incredible resource for donors at any level is a book by Tracy Gary and Melissa Conner called Inspired Philanthropy. Um, we used to use it at the Gill Foundation uh, when we worked with donors and helping donors match their values to their giving. And I'll never forget the first time that I actually did it myself um, with a book. And I realized that, as a lot of folks do, that when they really take an inventory of what are the most important things to them, what their values are, and look at their giving, sometimes it doesn't match. And um, certainly, mine, mine uh, matched a little bit, but I had discovered that I had actually been giving to something that my family had been giving to that I had no connection to other, other than my family. And um, so I changed my giving because I wanted my giving to match my values, and I reorganized my giving so that the largest gifts uh, I was giving at the time were to the organizations that most clearly aligned with the values that I had as an individual and the values that they had as an, as an organization. And my coming out process uh, in my family really affected the way that uh, my family even gave money. My grandparents, um, my grandmother, who I love and adore, um, you know, gave to the things that I was involved in. So gave to the organization I work at now, the task force, the National Game Lesbian Task Force, gave to the Prop 8 campaign, gave to a bunch of uh, organizations that, you know, she knew that were important to me. She even hosted a house party during Prop 8 <laughs> at my aunt's house. Um, and, you know, my whole family ended up giving to the, um, uh, the opposition to Prop 8. So it um, you know, that as I have continued to grow in my own political evolution since I was a child, you know, I grew up in a progressive household, but as that has kind of, as my life has changed and I've made different choices, my giving has changed. Um, and although, you know, I would, I would say overall, my family continues to give to progressive causes and, um, and so do I. And, um, that the, it's not just based upon my kind of complex identities, the fact that I'm queer or Chicano or the host of other things that I am, but it, it's really based upon my values and organizations that are doing really incredible systemic change work. I mean, I think that's the big thing that both in terms of what I know my family gives to now and what I give to is really not about charitable contributions or it's really about change, not charity. So addressing the systemic changes that affect LGBT people, people of color, young people. So uh, that's a little snapshot of, I think, the evolution of my philanthropy. Well, and kind of tied to that, I just wanted to piggyback a question. You mentioned about how shifting kind of especially the biggest gifts that you make to really line up with the groups that most clicked with your values and aligned with your values. I know a question I get from people is how they actually manage that shift. You know, how do you let go of or move away from the groups that you were supporting? How do you discover new groups? Uh, I imagine a lot of that for you is through the work that you're doing, your professional activities, but how have you kind of charted that kind of journey as you shift where you're giving? Well, I think it's always important to tell folks if you're going to stop giving to them or give less, like why you're doing so um, and the reasons why. Um, or, you know, as your income grows, certainly as my in income has grown over the years, I give more money away. And when I did my taxes last week, I discovered, right, that, like, my giving is continuing to grow um, in a way that, you know, is on par with, you know, if I get a raise or whatever. Or I, uh, so, uh, like, I got a refund from this program that I was a part of at my bank that 
I don't know how it happened, but they ended up sending me a $600 check and I didn't, I just gave that away because I was, it was unexpected, right? I wasn't expecting it to come in. So I ended up giving it away. But I think that, you know, I always come into contact with groups that are doing amazing work. And one of the things that I have tried to do in the recent past is to give to organizations that are not, do not always have access to the resources that other organizations do. So I give, I make a monthly contribution to the Trans Justice Fund. Uh, it is a, a organization that, that has a kind of collective giving model or a collective philanthropic model where folks who are, are directly impacted by the work make decisions about where that, the money goes from the fund. Uh, and it has been like my, my kind of favorite new thing, um, to give to, um, because Although I don't identify as trans, um, I believe I don't believe in binary notions of gender, and I think that that um, the work that they're doing, the work that they're funding, is really incredible, grassroots, cutting edge work, and those are the kinds of things that are, are in that particular. And the way I discovered them was I was at a conference here in New York, and one of the people from the fund was on a panel and I knew them. And during the course of talking about the, the fund and what they were doing, it really kind of inspired me to give. And I actually ended up signing up to make a contribution online while I was at the conference. Um, because it, you know, was a, it was someone I knew, first of all, that was involved in the group. Um, and, you know, after hearing about the work that they were doing and what they were trying to do, I was excited to be a part of that. Great. Well, it's, I have to say it's been great to hear you totally unprompted and unscripted talking about first the, the writings and the research um, from Tracy Gary, who we featured as a bold giver, and then to be talking about the Trans Justice Funding Project, which was started by Karen Pittleman, another bold giver that we featured here. So if anybody on the call, if you're interested in the um, in the Trans Justice Funding Project or interested in the book Inspired Philanthropy, check out the profiles of Tracy Gary and of Karen Pittleman on the Boulder Giving site, and you can see a lot more about both of them. Um, I, I really highly recommend Inspired Philanthropy. It is, it, it, it is a transformative, I think, because it's not just a bright, it's not just reading. Right? Yeah. It actually has exercises in it that walk you through a process of creating a plan. And so I go through now the same process every year when I create my giving plan um, for the year, thanks to that book. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple more questions for you, but I just want to mention to everyone, please do send in your questions in the Q&A section down below. Um, I see we've got a couple come in, and we'll be uh, grabbing some of those in just a minute. But... Before we do that, you know, I wanted just to ask a little more. How do you balance? I know one of the things that is a challenge sometimes. I face it myself as being somebody involved in philanthropy professionally. You know, I raise the money for Boulder Giving's work. I'm involved on a number of foundation boards. I'm involved as a donor and have been, you know shared my own story as a bold giver. Balancing the role of fundraiser and donor and how you discover groups through your professional work and how you discover groups outside. You know, any suggestions you have? I know many people on the call are board members of LGBT organizations, donors, and doing fundraising. And wearing both hats is always an interesting challenge. How do you manage? Uh, uh, it, it certainly is a challenge, but I think it's important to be upfront and honest. Like, I have always approached fundraising in that way, and... Like, I don't think it should ever be a surprise that <laughs> somebody's going to ask you for money. <laughs> um, and if it is, you know, I think it should be a teachable moment for that person. But, <laughs> but like, I don't think it should ever be a surprise. So if, uh, if I am talking with somebody and having a conversation about uh, raising money for a cause or an organization that I'm either on the board of or that I work for, um, like, that is always kind of upfront that that is what we're what's going to happen. And, you know, as a fundraiser, I approach it um, as when I sit down with a donor, the first thing I say is I'm going to ask you for and insert the amount. So, you know, if I was sitting down with you, Jason, I'd say, Jason, I'm going to ask you for $1,000 and then 
go into the whole reason why. I think putting the money up front is actually the better way to go because I think it puts it on the table right away. And instead of the whole time in the conversation, you thinking about how much money are you, are you asking for too much or not enough, and the whole time the donor thinking how much are they going to ask me for, um, that it kind of puts it on the table right away. The other thing is I like to talk about my own giving and my own philanthropy with donors when I'm raising money. And I often, before even asking for a gift, will talk with the donor about their own values and why they give to the other things I know that they give to, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you know that's donors of any size because I think it donors often don't get engaged in a conversation about yeah. why how their giving matches their values and why they give to certain things and what motivated them to to make that kind of gift to an organization that might be similar to the one that I'm raising um, money for um, and to really have that uh, conversation. I think it it ends up building a much stronger relationship with a donor over time because you are matching, um, you know, the values to the gift and not, it, 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 I think it, for me at least, the conversations take away the transactional nature of that kind of meeting. Yeah. Um, that's not about the, you know, here's my organization, it's amazing, please give me money, you give me money, and then it's over, right? It's more of a conversation around um, why that's important. And yes, it takes more time, uh, but I think it ends up being a win-win for both the organization and the donor because you build a much stronger relationship, and it often results in, or at least in my experience, getting um, a more significant and more stable gift over a longer period of time. Yeah. Well, I think even the, the building a relationship with somebody that's not just about their checkbook, but actually about who they are, why they care about your work. I mean, one of the things I'll often do is, as I'm sitting, you know, often after they say yes to supporting our work, um, or saying no to supporting our work. I had that, unfortunately, yesterday. Somebody said, I love your work, and it's just not going to be fitting with my priorities. Is continuing the conversation, and I'll suggest other groups and help connect them to other work, because it's not... I think it's so important not to see it as a zero-sum game. Did I get mine? Sure. You know, my my gift versus engaging each person as a resource for social change movements more generally. And it takes so many groups to do this work. I I mean I I fundraising gift from a place of abundance that yeah. there is enough to go around and that I don't believe in scarcity mentality. I never use negative words around fundraising or philanthropy, so I will never say, oh, I twisted their arm, or I was begging, or I, you know, because it, to me, that fundraising and philanthropy are not negative experiences. They are positive. I feel great when someone says yes to me. If I ask them for a gift, I feel great if they say no. I might be disappointed, but I don't leave the conversation there. Right, that there is something else to build. And I feel incredible whenever I can make a gift to an organization that I care about. Um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that is a feeling that I want to have all the time and a feeling that I wish I had more resources to give more money away. Because <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's that great. It's that great of a feeling. Um, so just seeing a couple of quick questions come in. One, oh, two people asked, the name of the book that we were just mentioning is called Inspired Philanthropy. It was written by Tracy Gary and Melissa Koner. Um, we will make sure to send out a hyperlink to that book as part of the follow-up um, email that comes out of this call. But uh, apparently the connection broke up right as we were saying the title. <laughs> um, so here's a, a variation. Kim asked a question that... You say you come from a place of uh, abundance and you don't want to hesitate in sharing. Have you had any experience of hesitating or challenges if you're asking or giving around faith-based organizations versus other groups? Well, I mean, I think that there, um, I think it depends on the donor, right? So mm -hmm. there are um, there are folks who um, may feel uncomfortable about giving to 
um, a faith-based group because of their own, especially in the LGBT community, their own ostracization from their community of faith. Like one of the most, um, you know, like I, you know, struggled a lot uh, in the early part of my career that, um, you know, rec- trying to reconcile being a person of faith and uh, growing up Catholic and what that meant, et cetera. I mean, I learned about giving injustice in the church. Now, I feel like the church has lost its way a little bit uh, or a lot in some cases. Um, but that's where I learned about it. And the one of the most impactful things that ever happened is I saw Bishop Yvette Flunder, who runs Unity Fellowship. Um, she was giving a speech, and one of the things that she said was, you know, she's a member of the clergy, and she said, I am here to tell you that I know that God was stolen from you and that uh, I'm here to tell you it's okay to take it to take it back, right? It was this whole... I'm not doing justice to kind of the what she, the message that she was giving, but it was a really emotional moment for a lot of people in the room that I was in because it was the first time that someone had acknowledged in a public way the pain caused by their faith-related upbringing. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, there are, you know, donors that have all kinds of issues with all kinds of different types of organizations. And I think part of the process is getting to know the donor as much as possible. So um, although I don't give directly to um, faith-based organizations currently, I do give to organizations that have faith-related organizing components. Um, And that, um, you know, it's interesting, this question actually makes me think that I actually have never had a conversation in my giving about being a person of faith and like what that means to me and that how that informed um, how that informs certainly in this conversation, how that certainly has informed my philanthropy. And I talk about it when I, you know, work with organizations around their fundraising, but, um, I've never had that conversation in a, when someone's been asking me for a gift, which I think is actually quite interesting. And I think those, in terms of like, there are sometimes issues that people don't want to broach for whatever reason. Um, but I think it's important to get to know as much information as possible, about the folks that you're raising money from so that you can have that kind of conversation. I mean, especially in, in terms of faith-related giving or faith-related organizing or faith-based organizations. I mean, in the LGBT community, if you go to a pride parade, the number one group of contingents at a pride parade in most prides around the country are churches, are, yep. you know, are welcoming and affirming churches, synagogues, temples, et cetera, that participate uh, in a pride parade. So, you know, there are, you know, there is still a lot of work to do, I think, in particular in the LGBT community around um, faith-based work uh, and getting people to make those connections. Well, and we know that people's religious beliefs are one of the biggest things that motivate them to give. I mean, that every major world religion has active teachings around tithing um, and it's one of those moments I think that's such an interesting, it gets very personal. You know, as you said, like what are the things we hesitate to ask people about? And yet it's those personal parts, your coming out story, if you're um, part of the LGBT community, your faith, your family, the struggles you've had personally. Uh, those are some of the core motivations of why people give. And actually I think one of the interesting things is that the act of giving and fundraising provides a moment for some of the more intimate conversations we end up getting into with people outside our immediate family. Yep. I completely agree. I think some of the, the some of the greatest conversations I've ever had about sex and politics and religion have been conversations with donors and kind of getting into, you know, the the root like, you know, like you said, people coming out stories or where they first got activated politically and what turned them into an activist, um, you know, where, you know, or their faith-related upbringing and, and how that has influenced their life. There certainly have been several conversations I've had on the fundraising side with donors that have been really inspiring in that regard. Well, it's the same, like, think about medical giving. Most people who give around specific, you know, health issues, it's because they lost a family member to a co- you know, to an illness or the hospital that saved their child's life. And I think that bringing those connections, and my hope actually, I think one of the things I've seen is that 
we have so many of those experience and moments. You know, if you think back and you're honest about like, okay, how many times have I struggled? Have I overcome? Have I been, you know, devastated in my life by various different things? Any one of those experiences could be a motivating factor for my giving. Sure. And it's like, which ones get activated and which ones do we think about related to our giving? Um, really indicate which issues we end up giving to or how we frame our approach to our philanthropy. Yep. Um, so another question for you in the kind of vein of, you know, getting inside a donor's mind, what does Russell really think? Um, how do you like to be approached by, or how do you suggest other people approach donors in the given conversation? I know we kind of continuing on this um, vein, you know, what types of conversations and communications help and how do you balance kind of the information overload? Well, I think the direct approach is always best, which is, you know, someone is going to ask me for a gift and I want to know that. Um, I don't want to have some mysterious, oh, can we talk to you about, well, just tell me what you want to talk to me about. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the direct, the, the direct approach uh, is always best. In terms of how organizations kind of keep me informed and what I like uh, about that is, um, you know, like I get a lot of email, I get a lot of email newsletters, stuff like that. But the organizations that, that uh, do you like a personal touch, like I used to be the chair of the board of the Grassroots Institute for Fundraising Training. I love GIFT. It is uh, a very important part of my giving. Um, in, you know, I actually um, like have named them in my plan giving um, stuff. Um, it's a really important organization. And, um, you know, I get little updates from time to time, or even when I get, they do a, um, they do a hard newsletter, not an email newsletter, called the Gift Wrap. Uh, pun intended. And he, um, when I get it, I, there's actually a note from either one of the staff members or the board members that's to me that says, you know, thanks so much for your giving or how are you? You know, I spent, I was involved with gift for many, many years. So that kind of personal touch makes me want to continue to give and to give more. Um, mm -hmm. As a result, or that you know, they involve like there, there's going to be a conference this summer called Money for Our Movements that I've been on the faculty for before, and so they reached out to me. I mean, that kind of thing is keeping me involved in the organization, continues my wanting to them to be a top priority in terms of um, my giving. Um, so you know, it's little things like that that I think that are important to me uh, as a donor because I feel like I have more of a personal relationship with the organization that someone I make a gift to and I just get their email newsletter and yeah. that's all they ever get, right? And, you know, of course, the amount of time you spend with a donor um, depends, you know, on the level of the gift they're giving, you know, and the number of donors that they have at that level and how they keep in contact with you. And, you know, certainly, you know, where I work at the task force, we have thousands of donors. And the donors that we spend the most time with are the donors that we have, you know, more significant relationships with. Um, and so, you know, I think for each organization, that's going to be um, different in terms of the amount of time they can spend. But the more personal touches, um, uh, I think, are better in terms, for me at least, in terms of my giving and how it strengthens my relationship with the organization. Russell, will you mention the name of that conference again? It's called Money for Our Movements. And folks can get the information on that uh, conference at the GIFT website, which is grassrootsfundraising.org. Great. Thanks. I think it's cutting, the, um, the volume is cutting out just a little bit if you lean too far back away from your computer. It's been a, something that happens with Adobe. <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and we will make sure to put a hyperlink for money for our movements as well in the follow-up email that all of you get. Um, that I am making a note to myself right now. So we will do that. So we had a pair of questions that came in 
that are both tied to like basically transparency. You know, that one of the things that I think is such an interesting juggling act is how how much do we share about our organizations and how do you talk with a donor or as a donor, how do you ask about some of the missteps or how it all comes together? So first question for you, how much do you talk about overhead project versus administration? What do you listen for as a donor around how people, how groups spend their money? Well, I, so I, I'm going to borrow from my friend Kim Klein, uh, who says that you should come out about your overhead. <laughs> um, you know, it costs money to do our work, and so I don't think you should shy away from that. And if you, you know, when we get grants and things like that, they don't nearly cover the amount of overhead that it costs to do our work, right? I think that there, you know, I used to work at a foundation, and I think sometimes there is a disconnection between the work that, what it actually costs to do some of the work, like to, you know, a lot of people love funding particular projects, but that's great. But if you can't turn the lights on, um, yeah. then that's a problem. Um, and if, let's say, your youth program gets all this amazing money, but you can't pay your staff or you can't give your staff benefits because it's not calculated in the overhead that you're allowed to do with a contract or a grant that you might have, right? It's, it, so I, I think people should talk about their overhead and talk about what it does and why it's important and how it's necessary to make your organization um, go. Um, I, you know, I try to talk about that in the groups that I raise money for and why that's important. Um, and that it costs money to do um, this work. Things don't things don't happen, as I said in my profile, automatically or for free. We have to raise the money, and so yeah, you know, part of it is paying for the stuff that makes our organizations live and work. Um, so I think there's that piece of it. The um, so come out about your overhead is what I'm saying. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> to borrow from Kim. Um, I think the other thing in terms of transparency is when people ask me for money, one of the first questions I ask is about their board. I have served on several boards over uh, my time, and I, if a board is not collectively giving money, like everyone on the board giving money, then that's a problem. Um, mm -hmm. And if you know, time and money are not the same thing. So, in terms of the transparency pieces, you know, I think that. You know, if you're 100% of your board makes a gift to the organization at whatever size is meaningful to them, then that's important to talk about. Um, because I know, as a donor, that they're volunteers because I serve on boards too. And most of the board, most of the donors that you're going to encounter are probably board members in some way, shape, or form. Um, yes. Or have been. And so I think really talking about that and talking about how your board and volunteers are actively engaged in raising money for the organization. Like when I raise money for the task force, people know uh, this is my job, right? I get paid to do this work. I'm in a privileged position in that regard. So, you know, I, you know, also like to talk about the our board and how great they are at their own giving and their own raising and um, so that folks kind of make that kind of connection. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to be transparent. The other thing that I look for um, is, you know, I ask questions of organizations about, like, what their balance sheet is like. When I, I think when you start asking for money, you open yourself up to being asked questions, and you need to be prepared to answer the questions. And there are some donors I know who are very concerned about the way organizations handle their finances because they... I've had experience where they have funded organizations and then the organization disappears. <laughs> so um, I think you need to be prepared to answer the financial questions that might happen. Like, do you have a reserve fund? If you don't, why don't you? Um, you know, how, you know, are you meeting your fundraising benchmarks every month? And if you're not, why aren't you? Is your board actively engaged in giving and raising money for the organization? Is there a commitment of a certain dollar amount on your board to be, that the board members have to raise? 
um, is your, in particular for me, some of the questions that I ask are, where's your money coming from? Is it all coming from foundations? How much of it is coming from individuals? Um, how much is tied into events? And, you know, events are very labor intensive and cost a lot. So the, the organizations that I probably give the least to are the organizations that I only go to their events because they've not used the event as a hook to get me into giving to other things at the, at the organization. Um, so those are the organizations I probably give the least to, the ones that I only go to their events or I make an event gift um, while I'm at the event. Like, if that's the only way that you're interacting with me, then it is, you know, as a donor, it's a loss for me because I don't know more about the organization beyond what I figure out at the event. And two, I could probably be giving more to the organization outside of the event, right? Because if I'm coming to an event like a dinner, so you're automatically, my gift is already automatically less because you're having to pay for everything that is associated with me being at that event. But if I, you know, still come to the event and give to something that I get in the mail or an email appeal or a face-to-face ask, right? It's a very different cost scenario. Uh, and I end up becoming more involved with the organization as a result. And I have a closer relationship than just coming to an event every year. Yeah. No, it's so true. Um, so a kind of follow-up question to that, another one that came in from, oh, now I just lost it. Hold on one second. From Adam asks about, you know, the fact that sometimes nonprofits make missteps. And either something hasn't worked out, a plan that we had, a program that we had, and even sometimes that those missteps end up in the news. How do you talk about your work when something doesn't go right? Um, And as a donor, are there ways that you feel like you have or could get involved to help groups that are struggling? Well, I mean, honesty to me is always the best policy. Um, you know, I have, you know, seen some groups. One, unfortunately, that when I was at the foundation, I had to close um, or help close. Um, that, you know, the I think it's important to be honest where you're at. Um, and to use that honesty as a way to describe what's happening in the organization and why stuff happens. Instead of me finding out as a donor who supports you and who has supported you for a while, something I read in the newspaper or online or on Facebook, or um, that then I'm shocked because I literally like was at the organization the week before and things seemed fine, right? So yeah. the you know, I, I think that more information is better than less, uh, and that the especially with those donors that you have really great relationships with, it's important to be honest and forthright with them um, because you know not only are they do they care about the organization, they're like investors, right? They're they're giving you the resources to be able to do your work, and so you know I certainly. Um, on the organization side, feel a tremendous amount of responsibility around and accountability um, to our donors to make sure that we are spending every every dollar wisely and that um, if there's a problem, that we talk about the problem. And we don't only talk about the problem to complain about it, but we talk about what we're doing to solve it. Yeah. Right? And what our, what our solution is to, um, to whatever is occurring at the organization, but I really think it's important to be honest because eventually the truth will come out. So, it really does. So you know, so why not why not lead with it? Um, and I, you know, especially if you're in a financial situation where, um, like you know, if I I I give to lots of different organizations. I have stopped giving to some organizations because I feel like they're always in financial crisis and that is not a good way to raise money. And it, I, you know, I respond, I give, if there's some, if an organization is in trouble that I give to, I might give an additional gift to the organization, but that can't happen like every quarter, right? Or even every year. 
right? It has to, it truly has to be an emergency when you're out there kind of saying, you know, and it could be that maybe you just lost a big source of funding that you were not aware was going to happen, which often happens in uh, the nonprofit sector. So having a broad base of individual donors that you can go to and say, this just happened, we really need our donors to step up to, for us to be able to continue to provide whatever it is that the program or service that they are. Like, I respond to those kinds of things because I understand the way philanthropy works and that sometimes that happens. And as an individual donor, you know, I can make an extra gift that can help the organization kind of get through um, that period. But, uh, you know, that, that cannot be cyclical, like that that happens all the time. Um, with the organizations, and if it does, and those are the organizations that I usually end up, I stop giving to, um, yeah. because you can't always fundraise in a crisis, and it's a sign that something's wrong at the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important. I mean, frankly, we had to, we went through that at Boulder Giving earlier this year. You know that we had um, you know, two major grants that we thought were coming through that didn't. And we've had to make shifts organizationally to manage it, um, which were, oh my God, so hard um, to have to do that. But that part of the conversation we've had with supporters is, here's the problem and here's what we're doing to solve it and how we'd like you to be part of that solution. And I think that is a, that's what I've responded to as a donor and now having to do it as an executive director. I think it's both being clear on the challenge and um, also presenting a solution as part of it. Uh, although I think the other piece I always try to remember as a donor um, is also to have compassion for how many conversations an organization can manage at once. Sure. That it's, I think that's the other big problem <laughs> that happens. You know, when things are going well, you can kind of share news as you go. When a hiccup or a challenge or a problem or a crisis, depending on how big it is, happens. Everyone emails us, oh, I want to talk to you about it. Can we talk tomorrow? And you're like, well, midnight to 1 a.m. is my unscheduled time. Call me then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's such an interesting kind of juggling that we have to do. Um, you know, so another question that came in, which I think is an interesting one, is how much... Um, Matt asks, you know, that whether organizations should reserve space on their boards for donors who write big checks. And I would say even beyond that, you know, as both a fundraiser and a giver, how you have been treated or want to be treated or expect to be treated based on the, the size of your giving relative to the organization's budgets that you support and how that, what do you think is the best way that that should play out? Well, let, let me talk about my own philosophy around boards. I, I don't think that there should be, like, board quotas or mm-hmm. board seats. So, uh, like, I don't believe, this might sound a little controversial, but I don't believe in, like, in... Uh, in seats that are set aside for young people or seats that are set aside for donors or because I think if you are really committed to being an inclusive and diverse organization, then you're going to have those folks on your board anyway. And having a designated seat for that particular individual is not necessarily, I think, the best thing. Like when uh, I was on the board of the task force for many years before I joined the staff and I joined as one of its, I think it's youngest member. Um, mm-hmm. And the board, some of the other board members would often refer to me as like the youth board member. And I hated that because it <laughs> meant that they like didn't take me seriously. And literally one time, one of the board members said to me, Oh, Russell, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too young. Even though I like was the second biggest fundraiser on that board. Like it motivated me to raise more money because I knew uh, that money is power, right? And that I could use the money that I that I was raising, or as a as a, a way to for folks to be able to listen to the opinions that I had on the organ at the organization. But but so that for me is why I don't 
necessarily like those kind of quota seats on boards um, because I think that it, you know, as a former young person in that role and as a person of color, it has not, um, I have often found that my experience and skills have been discounted because I've been relegated to those kinds of seats. Um, and again, I go back to, I think if an organization is really doing its job and being inclusive and it has that value, then it should, its board should reflect the diversity of the community that it's serving. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my philosophy around that. I, I mean, I think that in terms of giving and raising, I think that people, sh you should have all kinds of folks on, on your boards, whether they can write a check for $10,000 or they can write a check for $10, right? Because every, every dollar is important and everyone's experience is valuable. And I feel like if you have a board that is completely folks in one socioeconomic background, and let's say they're all wealthy, then it influences, no matter how progressive they are, it influences the decisions they make around the board table. And I want a diverse group of people making decisions for the organizations that I care about uh, and that I give to. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that there is incredible strength in diversity and inclusion, and it makes the conversation and the program and everything about the organization a much richer experience uh, as, as a result. Um, in terms of the way I like to be treated as a donor, I, I feel like if I am making a major gift to an organization, then I expect to be treated like a major donor, right, which is Come, you know, being contacted. I don't I think I need to be coddled, right? But I, you know, expect, I think, a certain level of access or a certain level of information that uh, the organization uh, is giving me or providing me. Like, I give to the National Council of La Rata. I'm a major donor there. And <clears throat> the person who I am in contact with there, who's, like, my contact, who's a major guest officer, is great. Like, I get little notes from her. I go to their uh, their conference every year. So she sends me a little thing in, in the, uh, that says, like, oh, here's the things you should go to. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, I feel like she said that my gift is valued there. Now, they don't have, like, a million, right, major donors. Their individual giving program is still relatively new. Um, and so they can spend the time. Now, as they get bigger, right, that if my giving doesn't grow with them, then, you know, I may not have the same um, level of uh, relationship with that particular person. But in my mind, that's okay because as I, you know, the most important thing for me, for them, is them to continue to grow and to do the great work that they're doing. So if I'm not going to get as much attention, that's okay to be. Even though I'm an, you know, I'm an only child and I love attention. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay to me if they're, you know if the organization is growing and getting bigger and be able to gather more resources to do uh, its work. So I mean I, oh, I, I think, think that's... I, I and I try to be I try to be a very low maintenance donor because I have dealt with many high maintenance donors over my time working in nonprofits and I don't want to be that person. So I you know I. I want to make my gift. I want to feel good about my gift. I want to feel like my gift is doing great work at the organization. And I don't want to be cause the staff or the board or the organization to spend more time on me and not be out raising and giving money. I, I went to a memorial service this last weekend for uh, one of the donors, Henry Mitchell, who passed away. And... Henry would send me little updates about his partner and their health. And I would write back to Henry and I would say, you know, do you need anything? You know, uh, everything okay? And he would write back to me and he'd say, here's what I need you to do. I need you to keep teaching people how to raise money. Right? He was a very low-maintenance donor. And he, wa he was more concerned about making sure that we were, you know, fulfilling our mission and that we were out raising money. Um, and you know, he was a he was a good old guy, and I'm I'm gonna miss him uh, a lot. Um, and you know, for that reason, because he was his giving was about you know 
um, making sure that the organization could continue to live and do its work and fulfill its mission. Um, and that's what I want the organizations that I give to to do as well, and not spend time worrying about me. I think it's such a, a wish. If every if each of us as donors and every donor we worked with were self-aware enough to know how much cultivating they needed and how important our gifts are relative to the groups that we're supporting. You know, probably one of the biggest conversations I end up having with people about their giving is to kind of think about your gift, not only which are your big gifts, but which gifts are big to the recipients. Because both sides of it really matter and affect the relationship of how we engage with the groups that we support or how we, with the donors that we fundraise from. Um, so another question, uh, we got a lot coming in and please keep sending them. I'm trying to bundle them as I give them to Russell since we're in the last 10 minutes of our call. Um, so we had a couple of questions come in. I'll, I'll take Cynthia's because it seems to kind of connect a couple. You know, do you worry about being a, a pesky fundraiser? And as a donor, when do you feel like you're being over-solicited? How do you strike that right balance of the amount of conversation you have with each person who supports your work? That is an interesting question, Cynthia. I'm assuming it's Cynthia Renfro, who Cynthia and I served on the board of, of the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy together. Um, <laughs> Cynthia Renfro, yeah. Hi, Cynthia. <laughs> Hi, Cynthia. Um, so, I mean, I think that, I think you know when you're being annoying on, when you're raising money. Um, you know, the, when a donor decides to disengage from you or not return your calls. Um, I think it's not necessarily that you're being a pesky fundraiser. Um, but I think that you, you know, there are some times that you just have to take a hint and, and kind of move on. Um, so, but I think that that depends really on the relationship that you have with the donor. Like, there are donors that we have at the task force that I can pick up the phone and call and have a 10-minute conversation with and not talk to them again for a few months, and they're fine because that's the way that they want it, right? When I worked at the center in San Diego, we used to have a donor that would give $10,000 a year through our holiday campaign, never wanted to be contacted, only wanted to thank you letter for that gift and never wanted to be mailed to. So it was, you know, that, you know, so I think as a donor in particular, you know, I like to, I like to have conversations with organizations about how I'd like to be solicited. Right. And I think that that is an important conversation to have that almost no organization has with donors. So when, you know, not only do I have the values conversations with donors that I raise money from, but, I also talk about how they like to be solicited, right? When can I ask you again? Like I, I, I think in the last five years, when people have asked me for money, I've never heard them ask me that, right? For some organizations, I might say, "Well, ask me at the end of the year," or "Ask me in April when I get my tax return," or, um, you know, like. Because then it puts the it puts some of the solicitation control in the hands of the donor, which I think is very powerful for a donor, right? Because especially folks that are getting asked a lot or that are really well known and are getting requests all the time, it is a you know a powerful thing to be able to say, okay, ask me in X month or by this date, um, you know. And I think a lot of that too is also understanding the donor's life circumstance right so if they're going to move or they're having a baby or they're getting married or their child is going to school what you know whatever those kind of big life events are the more you can know about that then i think it limits the um the donor fatigue that can sometimes happen um if you if they feel like you're asking too much and again i feel like it's all about <clears throat> Ask is there, because a lot of times people, when I do fundraising training, will say to me, well, when should I ask again? And my response is always, ask the donor. Um, so we're drawing close to the end of our time together. It's always amazing to me how these, you know, conversations just, the time flies by as we're in it. I guess, Russell, I'd ask you a final closing question of 
you know, so many people on the call are here with multiple hats, but for everyone to put on their, if everyone's wearing their donor hat at the moment, you know, I, my guess is everyone on this call is supporting some groups at some level in their own giving. What do you hope that we all remember, you know, speaking as one donor to others in how we approach our giving? Well, I was going to use a prop and put a hat on, but I decided not to. I don't I don't want to mess my hair up. Um, <laughs> uh, so, say, can you say that again, Jason? Because I, I, I feel like the, I feel like there are two parts of that question. But can you ask that question again? What would be, what do you hope we all remember or think about as donors in our for our giving? Well, I think the number one thing is that kind of the thing that I've harped on this whole hour and that I started with, which is is what you're giving to really matching your values? Um, and are the things that are the most important to you, that are the most a part of who you are, that are kind of core to your being, are those the things that you're giving the most money to? Like, I, I feel like the things that are the most important to me um, are the things that are I make my largest gifts. Um, and it's because when I give them, I want to feel like I've done something really positive that matches the things that are the most important to me, like as a person, right? As an activist, as a leader, as whatever. Um, so I feel like that values question, if you haven't kind of done that and kind of taken stock of what your values are and then look at your giving, you know, this is an appropriate time to do it, right? For those of us that itemize our tax returns and we get to see what we're giving to, you know, it's a good time to think about does that list of groups and the amounts that are associated with those groups really match who I am? And it's really is as an extension of me um, as a person. And am I living my life through the gifts that I'm giving to the organizations that I care about. So I think that's one piece. I think the other piece is to build, you know, I think we have a responsibility as donors to build relationships with organizations. I don't think it's always the organization's responsibility to do that. And that, you know, as donors, you know, you know, I, as a donor, I want to talk about the amazing work that the groups that I give to do, right? Like the Trans Justice Fund, I think is doing incredible cutting edge stuff and putting the power of money and funding in the hands of folks who are really doing that work. And I think that that is a very powerful thing that I want to be a part of and that I want to support. And, you know, so I want to talk about that to, to other people and that to encourage other folks to, you know, to participate in something that is equally as meaningful, um, to them. And so, you know, I think that, that those are the, the two things that I think about as a donor and that I hope that, you know, that other donors do, which is to think about their values and to think about how they can effectively build relationships with the organizations and causes that they care about. Well, thank you, Russell. And two um, offerings for all of you on the call is follow-up opportunities. If you're interested to kind of think or explore some of these questions more, First, I would be remiss if I didn't mention to all of you Give Out Day, which is the National Day of Giving for the LGBT community. Boulder Giving is the lead organizer on. It's going to be happening on May 15th. We have hundreds of organizations all over the country taking part, including the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Um, hope you will check it out if you are not, if you are with an organization, you're not registered. Registration deadline's April 30th, so there's still time to take part. And I hope that all of you will find the group or groups that you love and make gifts to them and let other people know about them, as Russell was saying, um, to be supported on Give Out Day. Also, we're really excited to be um, partnering with Philanthropy and DABA, um, a group that does ph philanthropy donor trips to do two chances to learn and think more deeply about philanthropy in the LGBT community in the coming uh, year. In September, we're gonna be organizing a two and a half day trip for LGBT donors to New York City 
to meet with local and national leaders talking about the future of the LGBT movement, whether it's issues of trans organizing, youth and homelessness, um, seniors and LGBT elders, kind of across the range of issues facing the LGBT community, where are we going, what are the future conversations going to look like. So that'll be a two and a half day trip in September. And then in March of 2015, we're going to be organizing a donor trip to Turkey, where we're going to Istanbul and Ankara, talking about the future of the LGBT movement internationally. And the, Turkey has been historically a cultural crossroads globally, and we'll be using that as a um, physical place to explore the future of the LGBT movement in the global context. Uh, we'll be sending out information to all of you about these opportunities. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us, and have a great rest of the day. And thank you again, Russell, for sharing. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.